So this morning, we're talking about the mystery of one in Christ. About 2,000 years before Jesus was born, God took Abraham and Sarah and chose them to be the parents of a nation and a culture that he would set himself aside to reveal himself to out of all the nations in the earth. And for about 1,500 of those 2,000 years, started with Abraham 2,000 years before Christ, that nation was approximately 400 and something years after Abraham. That nation was then trained up in the Jewish religion, taken out of Egypt and trained with Moses overseeing them. And God invested his love and his wisdom and his power and his truth and discipline into them. It was as if a nation was kidnapped by God from out of the world, taken into custody for 2,000 years, starting from Abraham, and then for about 1,500 years taken by God and trained up. That was a test case for the rest of humanity under the caring government of a true and just God. Because they represented in their responses and reactions to God's investment in them, whether those responses and reactions were good or bad, they represented how the rest of humanity would one day in its entirety respond and react to a God who would claim then, all in due time, by joining his life to ours in the person of Jesus Christ, the Jewish Messiah. Took them for us. All included, of course. We're all now one in Christ. That's the mystery. And he wants to reveal himself to us all and invest his love and wisdom and truth and power and fatherly discipline in all of us, like he did with Israel, in a very special religious way for 1,500 years. So humanity in total has always been the object of God's passionate love. He died for all. So what I want you to think about when I'm sharing these words is, is God big enough for this? Can God manage this? Can God really do this? Oh, no, I look around, no, I don't think he can. We don't limit God. So we've been the object of that passionate love. And when the Jewish Christ Messiah was born into the earth, he brought the fullness of God into all humanity. Not just from that time on into the future. It didn't just start with Jesus. In this, well, history changed when Jesus came, and so far as the future was concerned and the present time when Jesus was there. But redemptively, what Jesus did when he died on the cross and rose again from the dead, he redeemed Humanity all the way back to Adam and Eve and Noah and Abraham. No, no, he couldn't have done that. Because he wasn't there. He was there on the cross. 
He died and rose again. He took the keys of hell and death in his resurrection and he opened the gates of heaven for all of those people that existed before Christ's death. The Bible just wants us to know that God stretches from right back to way forward. The mystery of being one in Christ. And the scriptures are clear. We have always been in his sights. That's the point I'm trying to make. But unfortunately, he is not always in ours. And that's a problem. That's our problem. God's always got us in our sights in the present moment. The Apostle Paul grew up in the Jewish religion as a true authority in the way of the Jewish faith. He was then taken by Christ to become the true authority to the rest of humanity in the new way of the mystery of Christ Messiah. It was now our turn. And Paul understood the profound differences between us all. We're going to read in a moment about Paul trying to get this idea through to the religious Jews. What a headache that was for Paul. But he understood the differences. And yet he saw the stark sameness of us all. We're all different, but we're all the same. And he speaks to us about himself, who once thought it as a child and then grew up to think as one who has come of age. As a very small child, we all have the potential to become formed into whatever natural and cultural and religious traditions and temperamental thinking that it is that grows us. We've all had a different background. Paul was very aware of this. That's why he speaks about it. Is it any wonder, and now I'm going to address things that are happening today, which are sitting there in the background, is it any wonder that as adults we all contend with each other about what is right and wrong concerning just about any aspect of our adult perceptions of spiritual reality and truth? <laughs> what chance have we got? We've come from all over the place. Now, it's not so difficult locally, except when you've got the internet on the scene, that can be a little bit tricky to negotiate, and it bring, but it brings into clarity what Paul is saying. That's why Paul wrote to the church in Rome, which had Christians from every national and cultural and religious persuasion on the earth. And he was able to say this in Romans 14, verse 1. Welcome with open arms, fellow believers who don't see things the way you do. And don't jump all over them every time they do or say something you don't agree with. Even when it seems that they are strong in opinions but weak in the faith department. Remember, they have their own history to deal with. Treat them gently. Paul speaks from experience. Now let's look at Paul's journey of experiencing the almost humanly impossible pathway of getting everyone to agree with his understanding of the mystery of being one in Christ. You say, impossible. God's big enough. Can we trust him enough? Do we believe in him? Do we have the faith? Now, after he had dramatically succeeded in converting non-Jews from all over Asia Minor, that's up where, which is now Turkey, 
all of those places up in Ephesus and Pergamos and places like that, Asia Minor and Greece and Athens and these different places, he converted non-Jews into the mystery of Christ in us and us in him through the gospel. And once he'd done that, he knew what he had to do. Well, he thought he knew what he had to do. And he believed. He was on track. He determined to go to Jerusalem to persuade the Jews to believe in his revelation of God through Jesus Christ, their Messiah. Now we'll have a look at a quite an interesting and often very funny story of poor Paul trying to get this through to the people of his former religion. Not that it was a former religion to him. He still believed he was there as, as, as perfecting Judaism. And this is the account in the book of Acts. Luke wrote the book of Acts. He was the fellow traveller of Paul. I'm going to read from Acts chapter 21, 1. After the tearful goodbyes of the Ephesians, we were on a ship and on our way. Cyprus came into view on our left, but was soon out of sight as our ship kept on course for Syria and eventually docked in the port of Tyre to unload its cargo there. After we located the Christian disciples there, we stayed with them for seven days. They repeatedly told Paul through the Spirit not to set foot in Jerusalem. Don't go there, Paul. And after we'd been there for a number of days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. He came to us, took Paul's belt, tied his own hands and feet with it, and said, the Holy Spirit says this, this is the way the Jews in Jerusalem will tie up the man whose belt this is and will hand him over to the Romans and the Greeks. Luke says, when we heard this, we and the local people begged him, don't go. But Paul had made up his mind. He would not be persuaded. So we said no more, except the Lord's will be done. Not a bad freak. And it was. They get to Jerusalem and Luke says, our Christian brothers welcomed us gladly. Paul then went in with us to see James. That was the following day. And all the apostles were there. When Paul had greeted them, he began to explain in detail what God had done among the non-Jews through his ministry. Wonderful things that happened. When they heard this, they praised God, kind of dismissively. They had something else to tell him. It's like... Oh, that's good, Paul. Praise the Lord. Okay, well now. Straight away they said to him, but do you see how many thousands of Jews there are who have believed and are still all ardent observers of the law? They've been informed about you, Paul, that you teach all the Jews now living among the Gentiles to abandon Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or to live according to our customs. They then proceed to pressure Paul to act like a good Jew. And Paul understood this. He could see it all. And he later explained in 1 Corinthians chapter 9 and verse 19. He said, I became as a Jew under the law to the Jews and a Gentile without the law to the non-Jews not under the law in order that I may win them to Christ. I have become all things to all men that I might by all means save some. That's not just tolerance, that is a living faith that God is at work somewhere. <laughs> then they speak sternly to Paul. So do what we tell you. We have four men here who have taken a religious vow. 
take them, purify yourself along with them, pay their expenses for them to have all of your heads shaved. Then everyone will know there is nothing in what they've been told about you, but that you yourself live in conformity with the law. When the seven days were almost over, some visiting Jews from the province of Asia who had seen him in the temple area stirred up the whole crowd and seized him, shouting, Men of Israel, help! This is the man who teaches everyone everywhere against our people, our Jewish law, and this holy temple. Furthermore, he has brought Greeks into the inner courts of the temple and made this holy place ritually unclean. Violence broke out, and while they were attempting to kill him, a report was sent up to the commanding Roman officer of the garrison that all Jerusalem was in an uproar and confusion. The commanding officer immediately took soldiers and centurions and ran down to the crowd and rescued Paul. You can imagine Paul thinking, hmm, this is what Agabus must have meant, eh, with that belt of mine that he took. This is what they were talking about, hmm. But they did say, I will be done. As Paul was being bundled by the soldiers into the barracks, he said in Greek to the commanding officer, can I have a word with you? And the officer replied, do you know Greek? Then you're not that Egyptian who started a rebellion and led the 4,000 men of the assassins into the wilderness some time ago? Paul said, no, I'm a Jew from Tarsus in Cilicia, a citizen of an important city. Please allow me to speak to the Jewish people. When the commanding officer had given him permission, Paul went and stood on the steps and gestured to the people with his hand. They become silent. And when he addressed them in Hebrew, they kept all the more silent. Chapter 22. My brothers, listen to my defence that I now make to you. I am a Jew, born in Tarsus in Cilicia, but brought up in this city, Jerusalem, educated with strictness under your teacher Gamaliel, according to the law of our ancestors. And I was zealous for God, just as all of you are today. See, he recognised this. These people want God. So I'm going to give them God. I persecuted this way of Christ's Messiah, even to the point of death, tying up both men and women and putting them in prison. As both the high priest and the whole council of elders can testify about me because I received from them letters to the officials in Damascus to bring Christian prisoners who were there in Damascus back to Jerusalem to be punished. And as I journeyed and came near Damascus at about noon, suddenly a great light from heaven shone around me and I fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? So I answered, who are you, Lord? And he said to me, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. And then the story goes on, I'm leaving a few verses out, to mention Paul being made blind for three days and the disciple Ananias praying over him and Paul receiving the Holy Spirit and being baptised and his sight being restored. And then we get down to verse 17. And then he's still, he's still telling the story. Now it happened when I returned to Jerusalem and was praying in the temple that I was in a trance and I saw him, Jesus, Messiah, saying to me, make haste and get out of Jerusalem quickly, Paul, for they will not receive your testimony concerning me. So I said, Lord, they know that in every synagogue I imprisoned and beat those who believe in you. 
And when the blood of your martyr Stephen was shed, so I don't know if he's having an argument with the Lord here or just making a case that, please let me carry on and finish what I'm determined to do. So he's telling them, and when the blood of your martyr Stephen was shed, I was also standing by, by there, consenting to his death and guarding the clothes of those who were killing him. Then Jesus said to me, depart now, for I'll send you far from here to the Gentiles, the non-Jews. And all the Jewish people there listened to him until that was said. Then the Jewish men raised their voices and shouted, Away with this man from the earth, he should not be allowed to live. When they had bound him and stretched him out for the lash, he'd be flat on his face. Paul said to the Romans, and I don't know how he got his mouth out of there to be able to say it, but he said to the Roman centurion standing nearby, Is it legal for you to lash a man who is a Roman citizen without a proper trial? So they called the commanding officer of the Roman garrison again. He asked Paul, tell me, are you a Roman citizen? Paul said, yes, I am. He then brought Paul down and stood him before the Jewish religious council. (laughs) Paul never gives up. This is chapter 23. Paul looks directly at the council and said, my brothers, I have lived my life with a clear conscience before God to this day. At that, the high priest Ananias ordered those standing near Paul to punch him in the mouth. <laughs> then Paul said to him, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. Do you sit there judging me according to the law? In ordering me to be struck, you are in violation of the law yourself. Those standing near him said, Do you dare insult God's high priest? Paul replied, I didn't realise, brothers, that he was the high priest. I know what is written. You must not speak evil about a ruler of your people. Sorry. Then when Paul noticed that part of them were Sadducees and the others Pharisees, he shouted out in the council, Brothers, I'm a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees. I'm on trial concerning the hope of the resurrection of the dead. When he said this, an argument broke out between the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And the assembly was divided because the Pharisees believed in the resurrection of the body and the things of the spirit, and the Sadducees didn't. When the argument became so great that the Roman commanding officer feared that they would tear him into pieces, he ordered the detachment to go down and take him away from them by force and bring him into the barracks for his own safety. The following night, the Lord stood near Paul and said, Cheer up, Paul. Cheer up, for just as you have testified about me here in Jerusalem, you will likewise testify about me in Rome. I could just imagine Paul trying to smile while thanking the Lord and thinking to himself, so this is as good as it gets. But deep down, he knew it was destined to be better than this. Paul knew the greatness and goodness of Christ, and Paul never gave up. And that's why Paul was able to write in Galatians chapter 3. He says, In Christ's family, we are no longer Jews or Greeks, or slaves or free, or even male or female. But we're all the same. 
we are one in Christ Jesus. See, no longer Jews or Greeks resolves the perplexity about racism. Nobody has the answer for that today. It's hidden in the mystery of Christ. No longer slaves or free resolves the perplexity about entitlement and privilege. And no longer male or female even resolves the perplexity about gender equivalence. And all the perceptions and the felt experiences of hurt and misunderstanding about all of those things that we live in the midst of right now are resolved in our present moment faith consciousness of being one in Christ. There's no difference. God doesn't favour one race or the other, or one gender or the other, or one place of status or the other. All humanity really is his target to be in harmony with God in Christ, the ultimate intention. Did he die for all? Yes, he died for all. Otherwise you wouldn't bother evangelising people to say, I'll forget that lot, they're of a different kind of, a different nationality. No, I don't think he wants them, or whatever. It's all there. I don't like their temperament. It's got an ultimate intention. So these grievous problems that I've just mentioned, the Jews and Greeks and slaves and free and male or female, they're not only a bewildering predicament of our human society, and I'm saying throughout history, they're awkward, unsolved puzzles that have weakened the church's testimony of unity and justice and compassion to the world. Especially when the church has been given the very spirit of wisdom and grace to model the answer everywhere. The mystery of one in Christ. Our humanity seems to be hardwired, and we, we, we've got to look at this now, what's the reason? Why is it? What went wrong? Nothing went wrong. You're created differently to one another, and yet in Christ you're the same. But our humanity is hardwired from an early stage in life to detect unfamiliar differences in people other than what we grew up with. And there can be safety in that, but it's, it's instinctive. And they're cautious about anything that falls too far away from under our tree. I've experienced that as a child, strangers. And that's not unusual. But with maturity and wise guidance and an openness of heart and mind, we can learn to appreciate the practicality and the harmony of the blending of our differences that reveals to us that we're really all very much the same in so many ways and indeed we have need of one another because of those differences. We get to the penny drops after a while. I haven't got it all. <laughs> That's why Paul wrote that very thing to the church in Corinth, 1 Corinthians 12. The human body has many parts, but the many parts make up one whole body. So it is with the body of Christ. Some of us are Jews, some are Gentiles. Some are slaves and some are free. But we have all been baptised into one body by one spirit and we all share the same spirit. 
So what's happening? Yeah. God sees and appreciates the differences in us all. Doesn't put him off. Because he himself planned for us to have those differences. And to be expressed. The unique you is to be expressed the unique way you are by the Holy Spirit to the world, to your world. He sees you just the same as everyone else. And yet he knows you're different. We see the differences. He sees the sameness. He sees his son. He sees you in his son. We see the differences and we contend with each other even in the finest shades of differences of opinion or practice. And Jesus knows each one of us intimately, spirit to spirit, human to human. That's why Jesus became one of us. He understands the unique potential and the aspirations that we each have, the misunderstandings and the hurts that we've all suffered and the sufferings perhaps that we've caused others. So to repeat the last part of the scripture I read before, before Paul's journey to Jerusalem, when he wrote to the Romans about us seeing and understanding the enormous diversity that the human traditions and personal histories and experience of us all have landed us with. Romans 14.1, welcome with open arms, fellow believers who don't see things the way you do. And don't jump all over them every time they do or say something you don't agree with. Even when it seems that they're strong on opinions but weak in the faith department. Remember, they have their own history to deal with. Treat them gently. Now there's a long-standing caveat or caution here about discerning. In Ephesians 4.13, Paul is speaking about this body. He says in, in chapter 4, 13, until we all come to such unity in our faith and to the knowledge of God's Son that we will be mature in the Lord, measuring up to the full and complete standard of Christ. Then we will no longer be immature like children. We won't be tossed and blown about by every wind of new teaching. We will not be influenced when people try to trick us with man-made methods and doctrines so clever they sound like the truth. Now, that's always been there. It's here now and it always will be around. But the Bible tells us we have to be discerning and we have to ask the Holy Spirit to show us. And whatever it might be, whatever it might be in the experience of things that are not agreed upon, in Thessalonians there's one particular test about supernatural things, about all the things we do supernaturally, and it says, don't despise prophecy but test all things and hold fast to that which is true. So the test is, did it work? Was it true? Did it happen? Did it not? And just be willing to let go of certain things and hold fast to what it is that is the basic truth of one in Christ. And that's Paul's experience. It's not the major point I'm wanting to make today because there's not a lot of people that I'm aware of that are doing malevolent, deceitful things. But there are people that do different things. And there are brothers and sisters, we see them as one together in Christ and pray. 
and make sure that we are living our life in the oneness of Christ. So where does this revelation of oneness together in Christ start? Now, it has to start somewhere. Well, I mean, there it is in the Word of God. Paul preached it. But what about in our experience? Where do we start with this? Do we say, you've all got to start being one in Christ? We've said that for as long as I've been alive. I've heard that. We've got to start being one in Christ. In other words, do it the way I do it. <laughs> now, I believe it starts with a revelation from the Holy Spirit for each one of us that God has made us one with himself through Jesus Christ. Don't start anywhere else. Don't say, well, I've got to try and start being one with that person. Don't even go there. You start thinking with your natural mind. <clears throat> now, just go to Jesus, go to the Father and say, look, you've made me one with you. That's mind-blowing. Little me. I've got some funny ideas. It's all right. It's all right. I'm one with you. That's a revelation that we're one with himself through Jesus Christ. That has to come first. And that truth needs to be grounded in the truth that each of us is deeply loved by Father God. Each one loved as much as he loves his son, Jesus. Oh, God couldn't do that. No, no, now you're going too far. Oh, sorry, I'm not allowed to limit God. Even Jesus said it in John 17. Father, you have loved them as you have loved me. This needs to be reinforced and sustained by the truth that each of us is accepted fully as we are, along with our race and status and gender and shortcomings and limited understanding and half-formed opinions and the not-at-all-perfect teaching and formation of our thinking by our institutionalised doctrines and practices and favourite television preachers. All right, God says, I accept you as you are. You are mine. Now, this has to be a present moment thing. It has to be an encounter with God. This hasn't happened. I, I can't see evidence that the church is living as one in Christ. Otherwise, I'd be giving you testimonies. I see the evidence of the opposite. But I see Paul's struggle, and I see his faith. And I see the reality that's happening in the world. And I see the potential of something beautiful happening if we will have eyes to see. So we, we have to take one step at a time and say, Lord, I am one with you. So I want to learn from you, from your Holy Spirit. And I want to watch and notice that you are very accepting, Lord, more than I am. Otherwise, we're left with the fact, if we don't, shore it up with the fact that we're loved and we're worthy of it because of what Jesus did. And we're still imperfect and we've still got attitudes that need to be transformed. Otherwise we get left with the fact that God sees us as one in Christ and we see one another as outsiders. It's no good just saying, well, I'm one in Christ. Don't know about the rest of you. That's the way Peter saw the Gentile centurion Cornelius. And he was reluctant to even enter the man's house. God said to him, you go and speak the gospel to him. God said, no, not so, Lord. 
tells God, sorry, you're wrong here, Lord. And he was reluctant to go to the man's house and let alone present the gospel to him. He even told the man when he went into the house, I shouldn't be in your house. So he started to present the gospel to him and the Holy Spirit interrupted him halfway through his sermon and did the rest in very quick time. They all began prophesying, speaking in tongues. And Paul Peter said, well, it's the same thing that happened to us. God, they're not outsiders. You see, God knows how to get through to each person. And we need to know that we're coming from a place of oneness with God, knowing his power and letting him do the work. We try to be, if we try to get too persuasive with our little trick here and our trick there, special doctrine there, I think, oh, all right, I'll give it a go. No. We present who we are, having come from a place of oneness, a place of being totally loved and securing God and knowing that we're imperfect, willing to listen. Willing to speak, willing to hear. Now, I've seen some grand moves of the Spirit in my time. And this is not a prophecy, this is not a prediction. My notion of the next move, thing I think about of the Holy Spirit, is that the Holy Spirit would rain down and soften our hearts by his love and give us ears to hear one another, eyes to see one another, and hearts that feel for one another. Ask for that. You realise you need to ask for it. This flood of grace from heaven would melt our hearts, bestow upon us a humble innocence that heals our souls. And God be true and every man a liar. <laughs> Strange scripture, that one. Now, that flood of grace, that which heals our souls means that we then might just get to take that healing power that is real into a broken world. Let that healing rain fall, Lord. I was thinking to myself, what is, how does this make me feel? Well, I feel, okay, I belong. <laughs> I feel like a little dot in a big picture. And that's okay. As long as Jesus is the big picture. Because that makes a little dot feel big enough to be part of anything that Jesus wants to do. Thank you, Lord. Reveal to us our oneness with you and then in you to one another and with one another. In Jesus' name, amen.